Well, today is the second day of 2015. Whenever we begin a new year, it gives us the opportunity to reflect on on God's blessings and how He has sustained us in the previous year. And we also can anticipate what it is that God has in store for us for this new year. And so as we do begin 2015, I ask you to maybe ponder for a couple minutes here together. How did you grow spiritually in 2014? Did God take an impossible situation and show Himself mighty to say? What struggle did, by God's grace, did He help you to overcome? Was there a broken relationship that God healed in 2014? Did you learn how to maybe give sacrificially for the first time? Or did you learn maybe the joy of of serving Christ sacrificially? Did you have a greater awareness of, of God's presence in his life? Did you see more of the glory of Jesus in 2014? As I was praying here recently and just pondering what God would have for us as a faith family to meditate on on this first Friday of 2015, and from his word, where we should contemplate and be gripped by his word together, I had one text that God put in my heart. That's Philippians 3. And as I began reading and rereading this this passage, I had one phrase that God just impressed on my soul, and that phrase is, Jesus is better. For indeed, Jesus is better. In my prayer in 2015 as a church, as we move forward, is that we would experience more of His grace, more of His presence, and more of His joy in 2015 than we ever have before. May we truly be fascinated by our Savior, Jesus. So let's begin reading in our text from this morning, Philippians 3, reading verses 1 through 11. And if you don't have your Bibles, it will be on the screens. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason to con- for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in this death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is truly a remarkable paragraph inspired by the Spirit of God that is useful, and we will spend some time this morning considering what God has for us. And as you read this text, let me give you the primary truth that will be governing all of our thoughts this morning. The truth here is that knowing Jesus is better than anything else the world has to offer. Knowing Jesus really is better than anything else. I love how he begins verse 1. He says, Brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He's talking to a church in Philippi. Brothers and sisters, faith family, rejoice in the Lord. He says, knowing Jesus brings joy. And I love how he begins by saying, don't look to other things. Look to Jesus and He alone will fill you. He says to write these things to you is no trouble and to me is safe for you. And so He's saying to write these things again. And so there's been this theme throughout Philippians of have your joy in Jesus, rejoice in the Lord. And so He's saying basically, I know I say the same thing over and over. I know I'm, I'm preaching to you and I'm saying the same things repeatedly. I'm preaching the same basic sermon every single time that I talk to you. The gospel. Find joy in Jesus. And he said, that's okay. It doesn't bother me one bit. I don't mind preaching the same sermon over and over and over about find joy in Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice in the Lord. And he's like, I don't mind preaching it again. And you need to hear it again. The reality is that pastoring, shepherding, is very closely related to parenting. And, and as parents, don't we teach our children over and over to obey? Or do you have kids that you tell them once, and then they got it! They always obey from then on? Anyone have that experience? Oh, no hands raised. Oh, yeah, me neither. Liar. We're all sinners. We know that we teach our children over and over. You need to obey. We teach our children over and over. You need to be kind to others. We teach our kids over and over. Consider the wisdom and your decision making. Do we not? Of course. Because repetition is the mother of all learning. And so Paul here is saying, as a loving father, he is saying, yes, I know you hear the same message of rejoice in Jesus, this beautiful gospel that we need to hear again. How Jesus came in the flesh and died on the cross for our sins, was resurrected on the third day, is alive today, is a king over all people, and asks that we would submit ourselves, that we would repent, turn away from our sin, trust in Jesus, and His Spirit will come into us, and we will then experience joy in knowing him. The gospel is about God reconciling sinners to Himself. The gospel is about knowing God. Knowing Him personally. 
and knowing Jesus is better than anything else this world has to offer. And let's look at this text and see what Jesus is better than in this world. Number one, Jesus is better than religion. And we see that in this text. You see, many people tend to think that religion is all that they need for lasting joy. And in verses 2 through 5, what we just read, Paul makes it clear that religious activity and religious identity does not satisfy a human soul. Paul is describing here Jews who were claiming that it was necessary to be circumcised, basically to become Jewish, so to adopt a Jewish religion was necessary to be saved. And he says to them, look out for the dogs. Now, don't think dogs are cute little puppy dogs or cute little chihuahua or poodles. That's not what he's talking about and watch out for dogs that will come. Beep, beep, beep. No, 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 no. He's not talking about those kind of dogs. He's talking about wild dogs that are vicious. In the ancient world, dogs were hated and were seen as unclean and undesirable. And so what you have here is Gentiles, those who were non-Jewish, were oftentimes called dogs by the more devout Jews. And so it was a very negative term that they would call non-Jews, Gentiles, dogs. And now what you have here is the Apostle Paul, under God's Spirit's inspiration, he calls these false teachers, these, these particular Jews, he calls them dogs. He's calling them the very term that they would use for Gentiles. And in verse 2, he calls them evildoers. And he calls them mutilators. They're, they're cutting away at flesh. And so he's using very harsh, very strong language for this false teaching, claiming you have to become Jewish, you have to have circumcision to experience salvation. Why? Why such strong language calling them dogs and evildoers? Because Paul is getting here to the heart of the problem with religion. You see, for most people, for most people, religion is external. It's outside actions. And the religion does not transform internally. It, it, it doesn't change their hearts, their souls, their lives aren't transformed by their religion. They follow their religion, most people, because they want to either earn salvation, earn their way to God, and or they're trying to impress other people. And they have to do things to make sure that they belong to their particular peer group or community. And so partaking of their religion is what impresses other people and it gives them the approval of others. And so it tends to be very external. Very much just works. And in verse 3, Paul says that the true people of God, the true circumcision, those who have had their hearts circumcised, he says, worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. And so Paul is comparing two things. He's putting them side by side. Two words in this verse. He's talking about flesh and spirit. And he puts them side by side for a reason. And so he talks about the flesh, putting confidence in the flesh, he says in verse 3. The flesh is describing human-centered religion. 
that basically turns God's word into nothing more than laws to observe or, or rules to be kept. And so religion, man-centered religion, he's calling here flesh, is man's attempt to reach God. Man's attempt to do enough good. But on the other hand, he talks about the Spirit of God. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, who transforms people from the inside out, who does the work from the outside in. He comes in. He changes our hearts and our desires, like the prophet Ezekiel promised. Six centuries before Jesus would even be born. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That is the power of God's spirit. Giving us new hearts, a new nature, new desires, transformation from the inside out. And so the gospel of Jesus is not a religious path that you follow like the other religions of this world. Saying, follow this path, do these things, and you will reach God. No, the gospel is not that. The gospel is quite the opposite. It says, you can't, you can never do enough good. You can never reach God. And so instead, you put no confidence in the flesh. Because the point of the gospel is that Jesus came down to save us. Rather than us trying to reach up to Him, He came down to save us. There is no other message like it under the sun. And it's not about religion. It's about a person. It's about Jesus. Knowing Him personally and putting confidence in the work that He did on the cross. If you look in James chapter 1, it describes true religion. And so don't think I'm anti-religion. I'm for true religion, like it says in James 1.27. And he says, pure and undefiled religion before God. And so he describes in chapter 1 what it looks like to have what he calls true religion that's pure and undefiled. And so true religion is Christ-centered as opposed to external, human-centered religion. And so true religion is focused on the person of Jesus. True religion is the work of God's Spirit. And so true religion sees the glory of Jesus. True religion delights in Jesus. True religion puts no confidence in moral achievements or moral efforts. True religion trusts in the person of Jesus alone for salvation. True religion is based on the work that Jesus did on the cross, not the work that we do to earn God's favor. And we can be just as guilty as people that have other religions that are man-centered and external only. Many people who call themselves Christians, if you ask them, they'd say, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm part of the Christian religion. And yet those people, I say those people, but it could be us in this room, have no love for Jesus, no delight in Him, no joy in Jesus. As we begin 2015, Have you subtly, and it's subtle, but have you subtly believed 
that following Jesus is really just a religion. Do you believe that going to church, even in a zoo, staying busy with religious activity, having plenty of Bible knowledge, knowing information about the Bible, having a Christian tradition is what you need. You think to yourself, I'm good because I have all of the external appearances of religion. Have you, deep down inside, have you put confidence in the flesh, as Paul describes here? And so inside, when you're honest with yourself, what is your greatest treasure? What or who do you value the most? Because if we're not careful, any of us can just wear a mask, wear a religious mask, where we fool everyone around us, Everyone thinks that we're fine, but on the inside, we know we're not. So I'll ask you this question. In your daily life, this is a key here, not just Friday mornings, in your daily life, where are you telling yourself that you're living for God when you know you really are living for yourself? Because before Paul came face to face with Jesus, He believed that his religious activity and religious identity was all he needed. And verses 4 through 5 describe Paul's very impressive religious history and religious pedigree, if you will. His very impressive religious identity is described in verses 4 and 5. But then he learns something. Paul, by the power of God's Spirit, Paul learned that Jesus is better than religion, better than external man-centered religion. He learned that Jesus is more satisfying, that having the person of Jesus is more, it's better than a religion. And so then in verse 6, he continues, and we'll get to our second point here, that Jesus is better than, number two, performance. So number one, Jesus is better than religion. Number two, Jesus is better than performance. And in verse 6, Paul continues using his life as an example to show how Jesus really is better. He describes his accomplishments. He describes his previous achievements. And in verse 6, that's what he says. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he says zeal for his Faith, zeal for his religious activity is said to let him to persecute believers in Jesus. Because the religious establishment hated Jesus. The Jews that were ruling believed that he was not the Son of God. And they wanted him and had him crucified. And so Paul was being respected by the people in authority. So the powers that be of the day were approving of Paul's zeal to persecute followers of Jesus. And so Paul was performing well. He was doing what was getting him approval in the eyes of his peers. And so according to his human-centered, moralistic, religious activity, again, human achievement-based religion, 
he says he was blameless under the law. And so he doesn't say that he was actually blameless. But again, from a human perspective, following all the rules of his Jewish tradition, he would have been considered blameless in the eyes of anyone around him. Can you and I, can we relate to this mentality? Do you maybe serve in, even our church, do you maybe even serve here to maintain the religious appearances where you want the approval of others? You want others to think that you're a good Christian. And so you're very, very busy, very active in church activity, but the motivation, the reason why you do it is to get the approval of others we can very easily fall into that. People who do the religious thing in order to get approval of man. Other people do the religious thing because they want the approval of God. They think that by attending the occasional worship gathering, by going to church Christmas and Easter and the occasional Friday here and there, coming on occasion, showing up, they think that they're doing God a favor. They think that they're being a good person, a good Christian by attending church. And even put a few dermers in the offering bag, put in a few Bible quotes on Facebook. Good to go. God is impressed. You have a star on your crown in heaven. This is what we think to ourselves. And we think that we're getting the approval of God. But God does not want your performance. He doesn't want my performance. You know what God wants from us? He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants you to love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He wants you to honestly love Him. To truly trust Him. You can't fool God. You can fool me. You can fool others. But we cannot fool God. He sees our heart. And it's not about performance. It's about a person. It's about knowing and enjoying Jesus. Outward participation in religious activity. So even in our evangelical church, where the gospel is preached every week, outward participation in ministry, and even a gospel-centered church, is dangerous. Hear me. Outward participation in ministry is dangerous. It's very dangerous for your soul if you're doing it separated from a love and a passion for Jesus. If you're doing it to impress others, it's going to lead you down a path that you didn't want to go. It's not about religion. It's not about performance. It's about Jesus. Knowing and enjoying Him. You do that. And the Spirit of God will change your desires and you're going to want to serve. You're going to want to be involved in more ministry. You'll want to make more disciples. But the heart is different. Because at that point, you're gripped by a passion for Jesus, not approval of man. And so it is not about religion or performance. The gospel is not a formula for self-righteous people to prove their worth. It's not. The gospel is God saving unworthy 
condemned sinners like you and me for his glory and for our good. Jesus is better than performance. Number three, Jesus is better than comfort. He is better than comfort. You see in verses 7 and 8 as we continue in this text. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Amazing. I read that and I, I just get goosebumps. The Spirit of God inspired Paul to three times repeat the same thought. If you read it carefully, he's saying the same thought one, two, three times in a row. And what he's saying is knowing Jesus is worth more than anything else. Knowing Jesus is better. And in these two verses where he's describing how Jesus is better than comfort, he uses the language of accounting. Now, I'm not an accountant. Now, I, I do my budget, but that's as far as I'll get with, with accounting. I'm glad we have a ministry team with accountants that oversee our church finances. I'm thankful for them. God bless them for serving our church and God in that way. I'm not an accountant, but I can understand this in very simple terms. He's, he's talking about a balance sheet. He's talking about a record book. And there's two columns. On one column, it's losses. On the other column, it's gains. Now, we understand this if you have a business or even in your own home, personal budget. You have expenses, right? These are debits or, or debts or, or liabilities. That's where you spend. That's your losses. And on the other side, you have your gains. That's the income. It's talking about gains and losses, losses and profits. So, in, in life, when we would have our gains column, most of us would put things like having money and respect and a great career and great education for us and for our children and a marriage of your dreams that is full of intimacy and having wonderful children that are good looking and that everyone respects and are great in sports and educated and having this amazing family life. And having all kinds of physical pleasure and leisure and ease and a great home and a great car and all of these things. Put gains. Those are all the gains. You want to have all those in the gains column. You want to gain more of that is what we tend to think to ourselves. Now, in the losses column, we'll put things like suffering and economic hardship and unemployment and discomfort, and persecution. Those are going to the losses column. We don't want any of that. And we think to ourselves, if we have these two columns, if we have more on the gains of things that we want, and we can minimize our losses, then we're going to have happiness. And life's going to be so great if we can just have more of these great gains and minimize those terrible, hard, discomfort losses. And the Apostle Paul, by God's Spirit's inspiration, turns it totally around. He flips it over. If you don't know the context of the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul was in prison. We know that from chapter 1. He describes how he's in chains. He's suffering for the gospel. He broke no law. He committed no crime. 
and yet he's in prison because he preached the gospel. So he's suffering in prison. And if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it describes churches in Macedonia. By the way, Philippi was in Macedonia, modern-day Greece. And so we know from 2 Corinthians 8, it says the church in Philippi, it says, had extreme poverty and severe affliction. It's how the Philippian church is described. And so the Philippians, the church in Philippi, was experiencing severe affliction and extreme poverty. Apostle Paul was experiencing suffering in prison. And so that's the context for this language here. No, nothing ideal, not the way they would ever have designed it. And yet Paul says, I count everything as loss. Put it in the losses column. I come to all as loss. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The word there is dung. In order that I may gain Christ. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. That's how he describes it. The surpassing worth of just knowing Christ. What this means for you and me as disciples of Jesus is that we take all of our personal agendas and we put them all under losses, not gain, losses. So financial security and career, education, family, pleasure, losses. All of it go under the losses column. We count it a loss for the surpassing worth of simply knowing Jesus. You put one in the gain. You only have one and his name is Jesus. And if you have nothing but Jesus in your gains column, then you have everything. He's what we need. Everything else he counts as loss. We don't exist for all of those things that we would want to put in the gains column. We don't exist for those. We don't exist for family or for career. Those are all gifts. Gifts from God that he wants us to use as a means to glorify Him, as we enjoy and are good stewards over those gifts. We must never take the gifts and put them up next to the giver of the gifts. We love the giver more than we love the gifts themselves. We don't exist for those gifts. We exist for God. That's why we exist. And so we count all things, including suffering or hardships and trials. You know what those things are? Gains. They're like, wait, wait, no, we want want to minimize those and the losses. No, hardships. He says, I've suffered. And that's a gain. You think, well, how is suffering a gain? If it drives you to your knees. And if you experience more of God's presence and you know Jesus more, you're reminded of how desperate you are for Him and you get to see God do the impossible. It's a gain. It's a gain. True joy is in Jesus alone. He is our gain. But our problem, and I say we because I'm in it, our problem is that we live in a consumer culture. And in our consumer culture, many people think that they want to follow Jesus because they believe that by following Jesus, they'll have financial blessings. 
They believe they can name it and claim it and get all the blessings that they want. And so they want to follow Jesus for, for money because he'll bless them if, he's, if they're faithful to Jesus. Or they want Jesus because they'll get a great marriage or peace of mind or whatever. And they want those things more than they want Jesus. But that is not the gospel. The gospel changes our hearts so that we joyfully commit ourselves to God's rule in our lives. We joyfully want God to be king. And then we joyfully want to display his glory with lives of sacrifice and generosity and lives of purity, even when it's hard. What is it that you want most? Don't say it out loud. But in your own mind, I'm sure you know what it is. Whether it's financial security, education, marriage, or better marriage, or whatever it might be, whatever it is that you want most. If God doesn't give it to you, if God says no to what you want most, and he says, my grace is sufficient for you, and you get his presence, and you get his joy, will that be enough? Will we be content with knowing Jesus even if we don't get what we want or if we lose that which we think brings us the most joy? The truth is that God calls us to live out this faith in in the middle of a very broken world and we praise God. We thank God for discomfort. We thank Him for discomfort because it drives us closer to Him. We experience His presence in more profound ways. We know Him better. We're more useful for His kingdom's sake. This is especially true if when we're experiencing discomfort, if we turn to something sinful to bring us a degree of comfort, then you have to know this, that Jesus is better than that sin. Jesus is better. Look to Jesus for comfort. His Spirit will comfort you. Don't turn to that sin. It won't comfort you. It will leave you hungry and thirsty and wanting and broken and desperate. We need to be desperate for Jesus. Jesus is better. He really is better. He is better than religion, better than performance. He's better than comfort. He is better the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Now, this text here is describing these three general categories of religion, performance, and comfort that Jesus is superior to. And the reason that he's better than those things is that those things are man-centered. They're focused on, on just this fleeting, temporary life and world. And so they won't satisfy because they're too temporary. So in the last few verses, 9 through 11, it's describing why Jesus is better. Let's look at that as we kind of wind things down. Why? Why is Jesus better than everything else the world has to offer? If you're taking notes, it's on the screens. Jesus is better because he offers eternal significance and joy. 
He is better because He alone is eternal. We were made for Him, and He alone offers eternal significance and eternal joy. And so verse 9, it says, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, we don't have our own righteousness. We don't have any goodness on our own. Left to ourselves, we're selfish. But it says here that we receive the righteousness of Jesus. We get His goodness. And we receive His righteousness, it says, by faith alone. That which depends on faith. Righteousness, not from the law, not from what I can earn or achieve. No, not not through religious efforts. No, through faith alone. It depends on faith, he says. Not man-centered, God-centered, Christ-centered. And so why? Why is faith required? Why does God say you must trust in Jesus alone to be saved? Why? Faith is the anti-work. Faith is the opposite of work. You see, we're all wired, every one of us, we're all wired for works-based salvation. All of us want to earn it. We want to maintain our pride, and we want to earn our salvation. And God says, you can't. You're not good enough. You must simply trust in Jesus alone. You don't have to earn it, because Jesus already did on the cross. And so the last few verses, verses 10 and 11, describe beautifully, we'll go through it quickly, what it means to actually know Jesus, verses 10 and 11. And he says, the power of his resurrection. So that, that's one thing he's describing on knowing Jesus, is knowing the power of his resurrection. So based upon Christ's resurrection, we now have the Spirit of God, back to verse 3, in the same context, the Spirit. And so we have the Spirit, we have the power, the ability to live lives victoriously for Jesus. He was resurrected, and we've been spiritually resurrected as well. And so we share that. And he says, next, he says, and may share his sufferings. And so knowing Jesus means sharing in his sufferings. Now, we don't suffer how Jesus did on the cross for all humanity. He alone, Son of God, could do that. But we're talking about here in this context is, are you hungry to know Jesus? And even if it means suffering, then we say, bring it. And so do you want to know Jesus more personally and be more deep with Him and more real with Him and more intimate with Him? Is He your greatest treasure? And so practically, this discussion on suffering, a couple of brief thoughts on what this means for us practically is, Whenever I'm called upon to choose between Jesus or anything in this world, we choose Jesus. And it also means practically that if I lose the things of this world that it can offer, if I lose these things, I don't lose my joy because I have the ultimate treasure. I have Jesus. And so we share in his sufferings. Jesus suffered and so do we. And we welcome it if that's what God has for us, because we have Him. And He says, knowing Jesus is becoming like Him in His death. So Jesus completely died to self. He became a sacrifice 
for others. So Jesus died on the cross for our sins to save us. And so the nature of salvation, it came through death. And so we must daily choose to die. Die what? What has to die? Our agenda has to die. Our selfish desires have to die every day. So we must actively, by the Spirit of God, through His Word, kill our selfish desires and patterns of sinfulness. And how do we do that? With truth. We fight against sin with the truth of God's Word. When you're tempted, you fight back with the truth that you have His Spirit and that you're adopted and that you've been transformed and that you're redeemed and you have a purpose. And if you give into that sin, it's going to cloud God's presence. And if, and if you're fighting against feeling down or like you don't measure up, if you're here today and you feel beaten down because life's been hard and you're tired from the battle, And you think that you can't impress God and you just can't do enough to please Him. You don't have to. Jesus already did. All He wants is for you to trust Him. All He asks is that you will be His little girl, little boy. Trust Him. And focus on Him and let Him fill you. You don't have to impress God. He loves you. Just as you are. And because He loves you, He's given you His Spirit. And He is slowly conforming you. And when I say slowly, I mean slowly because of our perspective on this earth. But from God's perspective, what we're seeing as every day slowly is really quite quickly. He is transforming you. So you just trust Him. Love Him. But you see, salvation wasn't just death, it's also resurrection. So the nature of salvation is Christ died, but he was resurrected, he's alive today. And so you see that last phrase, and by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the beauty of the gospel, is we have been resurrected spiritually and we await that day, where we'll be resurrected physically. And this gives us hope, and you come full circle Back to verse 1, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord, brothers and sisters. Find your joy in Jesus. He alone offers eternal significance and joy. This text is amazing. It describes how we have His Spirit, and we have the power to overcome struggles, and we have hope in suffering. We're being transformed by His Spirit. We have an eternity waiting for us with Him, of enjoying Him forever. Let me ask you, what is more significant than that? What, what can you give your life to? What pursuit could we possibly have that's more valuable and more significant than being found in Christ, knowing Him, and having others know Him as well? What else should we even live for other than knowing Jesus and the joy of having others know Him as well? 2015 is upon us, day two. So as we move forward, what are you looking forward to most in 2015? May we experience more of Jesus. For nothing satisfies. Nothing is better. Jesus is better. Pray with me.
our loving Father. We praise you. We know that every blessing, every good gift that we have has come from your hand. Jesus, you truly are better. Nothing else can satisfy us. Just knowing you. I pray that we as a church would be gripped by your beauty, your glory, and that we would be so hungry for more of you and that then it reflects in how we live with lives of generosity and service and purity and of being on fire for your mission of glorifying you by making and developing disciples. Thank you for this time to be together in your presence. We praise you for you are worthy. Thank you, Jesus. We pray for your kingdom's sake and in your name.